If you were to get on your computer or phone and open up a search engine like Google or Bing, I don't know if anybody uses Bing, but Google, we'll say, if you were to open up Google and type in, how do you know if someone is? What you'll find is that there will be some provided answers for you, and those are the top uh, searches. And that's true with any search. You start to type something, and it'll provide some um, potential answers for you, and those are the ones that people most often search for. So if you were to type in, how do you know if someone is, the top provided answer would be lying. That's apparently the most (laughs) often phrase that's searched that way. How do you know if someone is lying? Other results include, how do you know if someone is your soulmate? How do you know if someone is thinking about you? How do you know if someone is bipolar or depressed or flirting with you or jealous of you? So just from those, you can tell that we're pretty preoccupied with what people think of us and other people's mental illness. That is what people want to know about when they search, how do you know if someone is? The apostles of the early church had a related question, how do you know if someone is Christian? How do you know if someone is one of us? How do you know if someone is born again, who is part of the covenant people of God? How can you tell if someone is genuinely brought into the family of faith? This was an important question for the early church because they were dealing with two broad categories of people, Jew and Gentile. The Jewish people were the people who lived under the covenant, the law of Moses, the law that was handed down at Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments and all that follows, that law determined life for the Israelites, for the Jewish people. And it determined who was part of the Jewish people. You had to live by the law of Moses, including circumcision. That's what marked out the males as part of the community. So the law determined whether or not you were Jewish. Gentiles are those who were not Israelites, not Jewish, were not under the law. They did not adhere to the covenant of Moses. But what starts happening in the early church is that people from both groups start believing in Jesus. And the church had to figure out, what do we do with this? The presumed answer would be that Gentiles would have to become Jews if they're going to be part of the people of God, that they're going to have to come under the law of Moses, get circumcised, become part of the covenant people. That would only make sense. The surprising answer of Acts is that that's not actually true. That Gentiles can become fully part of the covenant people of God without coming under the law of Moses, being circumcised and all those things. We started to see that last week as Peter has this vision. We're introduced to two prominent people here, Peter the Apostle, the head of the Apostles, and Cornelius, who's a Gentile, a Roman centurion. And they meet because God gives a vision to Peter and he speaks to Cornelius. And God arranges a meeting of the two. We ended last week with a vision that Peter had. What was that vision? Some of you may remember. Peter has this vision of a sheet coming down and all kinds of animals on that sheet, both clean and unclean animals. According to Mosaic law, some animals were okay to eat, some were not, some were off limits. But all kinds of animals come down and God says to Peter, kill and eat, eat anything on there. 
Right? And we love Acts 10. Why? Because we love barbecue. Because pig was an unclean animal. But because of Acts 10, we know we can eat it. Because, God said, nothing is unclean anymore. But of course, God wasn't just talking about food, was he? He was talking about people. And he was saying to Peter, anybody can become part of the covenant people of God. In fact, they don't have to become Jewish first. They don't have to come under the law of Moses. They are no longer unclean. Anybody can be part of this covenant people. So what's going on here in this section in Acts, in this story, is God is proving to Peter and the church that anybody can be his kind of people. So our guiding question throughout these three sermons is this question. How does God prove that all kinds of people can be his gospel people? We not only know that's true, but we're looking at how does God prove it? here, to Peter and the church. How does God prove that all kinds of people can be his gospel people? The first answer, as we found last week, is that God removes the covenantal barrier between Jew and Gentile. The law of Moses is no longer binding on Gentiles. Really, and Jews. And they are united in Christ. God has removed that covenantal barrier and now made them all one in Christ. That's the first answer that was shown to Peter in a vision. This week, we'll find our second answer to that question. How does God prove that all kinds of people can be his gospel people? We pick up in the middle of the story in verse 17, and we group together verses 17 through 33, and here we see that Gentiles receive the messenger of God. That's how you know these people are becoming part of God's people is they receive the messenger of God. They receive the one whom God sends. Gentiles receive the messenger of God, and that is Peter. Gentiles receive Peter, the messenger of God. Verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Now stop there. So here we find, okay, Peter... Is in Joppa, 
Cornelius is in Caesarea, which is up the coast. Peter's staying at a man named Simon's house. He's a tanner. He's just had this vision of a sheet full of all animals. He's perplexed about the vision. He's not sure what it means. But at the same time, Cornelius has sent men up to Peter, or down to Peter, and said, go get him. So the men arrive, just as Peter's vision is over. He's confused, but he sees, oh, people are coming to get me. Cornelius' men meet him. The Holy Spirit speaks again to Peter to make sure he goes, to give him assurance, don't worry, they're with me, they're cool, go. Right? So Peter lets them in, they stay there overnight, which may have made Peter ceremonially unclean because these are Gentile men who he has now let into his house and shown hospitality to. God is at work breaking down potential walls. They stay there overnight and then they leave Joppa and make their journey up to Caesarea where Cornelius is. Peter takes men with him, which is smart for both protection and to have witnesses as to what will happen. And when Peter finally gets to Cornelius' house in Caesarea, what does he find? Cornelius invited all his friends and family. He brought friends with him and says, we all want to hear what Peter has to say. Whether this is a Bible teacher's or a preacher's dream, you're going to meet one person, and then a whole crowd is there just hanging on the word, saying, what do you have to say for us? Which I find just this whole scene fascinating in and of itself. Why? Because it just shows, I think, then just as now, there are people hungry to hear from God. They had heard that something supernatural was happening, that Cornelius had had this vision of an angel, and there's this Peter who was doing miracles and raising people from the dead, and Peter might have a message from God, and that compels people to come. And I still believe this very much, that people want to hear from God. Especially now, in the midst of a world where we just have nonstop voices all around. Hard to know who to trust in the midst of all of that. And there is something incredibly refreshing about going back to Scripture, opening up and knowing, I can hear from God here. I think that's why people come to church. Not the only reason. Why do you come to church? You come to church because you love the people. I hope that's part of why you come to church. You love serving one another, meeting one another, encouraging one another. That's part of what we do as a church. You come because it's maybe just custom and habit for you. This is just part of what you know. This is what you do. Maybe you're here because mom dragged you, right? And this is, you are here by obligation and duty. But for a lot of us, I hope, and for me, one of the reasons I come to church is because I want to sit under God's word. I want to hear God speak. I want to hear something that isn't just noise, but something that will both weigh on my soul and lift my burdens at the same time, that will press upon me and lift me up. And that's something that only God's word really does in a unique way. And that's why these people were there. They wanted to hear from God. And I hope that's why we come every Sunday and we gather together. I hope that's why you open up your scripture in the morning, because even if you don't have a charismatic experience with it, you still know you're hearing from the Lord and you're hearing from God who is divine as you open up scripture. We need to hear from God, and that's exactly what happens here. 
they are ready to receive Peter, trusting that he will give them some word of God. In fact, Cornelius is really excited to see Peter. What does he do? He bows at his feet and begins to worship him. Now, Cornelius was a God-fearer. I don't think he thought Peter was God. I think he knew enough of God to know this is not God. But he had also heard about the miracles. He had heard Peter had some special connection to God as his apostle or leader. and He is excited. And maybe even he thinks that Peter has some type of special status as God's man, this divine agent of God. So he worships him and bows down to him. And Peter does what every messenger of God must do. And he says, stop it. I'm just a man. Anybody who would ever be a messenger for God, a servant of God, this must be your disposition. I am only a servant. I am not God. I am just a man. You may not realize it, but this has been a core of Protestant evangelical theology. That we are just men. We are men and women who are servants. We do not have special um, status above others as God's people and only, you can only speak through us. And what I mean by that is, like, the Protestant church differed from the Catholic church, right? The Catholic church has somebody at the top, who's the Pope, who are very special in their connection to God, and they have priests and bishops and clergy and cardinals, and all this special cast of people who are the special ones, and you can mediate through them, and you can go to them, and they have a special connection with God. They even wear funny hats. And people go and bow before the Pope and kiss his feet and his hands, which I find really ironic because Peter, who they say is the first Pope, wanted none of that. And then what do they do? They have prayers to and through Mary and the saints because they think that Mary somehow has a special connection. The saints that have passed all have a special connection. They pray through them. When the scripture tells us we have one mediator, and that's Jesus. So we reject that as Protestants. And we don't do what the Orthodox do. They have icons. Do you know what icons are? Icons are kind of artistic images of past saints, and they use them for meditation and worship. They look to the saints of the past and say, we venerate them and honor them because they have some special connection now that they're past and deceased to God that we don't have, and we're going to look to them. And Now, if you talk to Catholics and Orthodox, they'd say, we're not worshiping these people. Now, I would say, I don't think Cornelius was saying Peter was God, but he was showing him special veneration. And we say, we don't do that as Protestants. We don't have Mary and the saints. We don't have... Um, icons, but we really do make celebrities out of our leaders, don't we? We'll build big box churches everywhere and pump Greg Cruchel into them. And one guy out of one place will be the spokesman for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians. And we'll take people, and, and I love some of these people, your Pipers and your Kellers, but we'll have them write book after book after book after book after book on subjects they're probably not experts in, but because we venerate them and honor them. We have a real problem with celebrity. We put names on our Bibles. The Schofield Bible, the MacArthur Bible. Right? It doesn't seem weird to anybody else. 
So we may not have Mary and the saints and icons, but we do this weird thing where we lift men and women up more than we ought to and look to them as our spiritual guides and leaders. I would say at times we inappropriately cross the line into veneration of not worship, and it's good for all of us to remember the messengers of God are just people. Peter's just a person. He's just a man. All of us have this inclination to want to be worshipped and venerated as God's special person. And you say, well, I don't have this. And I would say, well, next time we shut down your ministry because we think it will be better for the church and better for Jesus if your ministry is not a part of what we're doing. Ask yourself, am I still just a servant for Jesus and only about his name? Or do we get really protective of our roles as messengers? This humble attitude should pervade all the church. We are just servants and messengers. Whatever brings honor to Jesus, that's what we want. If we must decrease, so be it. That's what Peter says to these people. He says next something interesting. It's actually against my custom to be here, so you know. So it's kind of a, I am humble, but also, this is weird. Um, a room full of Gentiles, this under the law should make me unclean, but God has shown me. So Peter's gotten the message by now. He's understood his vision. God has shown me that I should not call any person commoner or unclean. So what can I do for you? Peter will find that these Gentiles are ready to hear him, and he'll see this as Cornelius recounts his story, verse 30. Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who was called Peter, He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Cornelius recounts his story, how he saw an angel, says, we're ready to hear what you have to say, Peter. This is how you know these Gentiles are becoming part of the people of God. They're ready to receive the messenger. If you've been a Christian long enough, you've seen this in other people, and you've seen, maybe you've perceived, I think, I, I think they're becoming one of us. They're eager to hear what God's messengers have to say. Like they're listening. You can see this as a preacher sometimes. You can tell, oh, they're really hanging on. They're intrigued. And you kind of know God's doing something. Right? And this is what happens here. God is at work in these people is preparing kind of a, you could call it a fertile ground for the message. So what do you say to somebody who you think has a fertile ground? Let's say you're friends with somebody, you're having coffee, and all of a sudden they become really interested in things of the faith and Christianity, and you go, oh no, I wasn't ready to share the gospel today. And you freak out. What do you do in that moment? Well, you remember Peter in Acts 10, and you go back to this passage. And maybe in preparation for those times, you go home and you read this a few times this week, just to see how does Peter do it? 
Because what you'll find is that what Peter does here is really, really simple. He's got a high-pressure moment, lots of people hanging on his word, people eager to just hear what the messenger has to say. And he presents a simple gospel message, and they receive it. So Acts 10, verses 34 through 43, Gentiles receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what happens next. Gentiles receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. First they welcome the messenger, then they receive the message that he brings. The Gentiles receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter perceives that they are ready to hear the gospel, and he says, well, surely, truly, God shows no partiality. These Gentiles, these Romans, Cornelius, who's a Roman soldier, he's a centurion, they're ready to hear. So what this tells me is that God shows no partiality. What he means by that is God isn't just for Israel. Israel is God's chosen special nation. Genesis 12, he has chosen Abraham's sons as a special people, but through those sons, he's going to bless the whole world, and that's what's going on. So Israel was always God's covenant people. They have a special place in his eyes, but God shows no partiality in that anyone can become part of his people. And we see that in the history of Israel, going way back to Melchizedek, this weird guy who comes out of the scene and somehow knows God. Then you see Rahab and Ruth, And even Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king who appears by the end of his life to know God Almighty. People from outside of Israel throughout history who have become part of the people. And now it's happening in in an even greater way before Peter's eyes says, truly understand, God shows no partiality. Anybody can become part of the people of God. This is the inclusivity of the gospel that anybody, no matter your background, no matter where you are, can become part of God's people. Now here's the exclusivity. Here's the condition. So long as anyone who fears him and does what is acceptable to him can be a part of his people. Anyone can be part of his people. But those who are his people, fear him. Seek to serve him. Love him. So with that... Peter then goes into explaining the gospel. What would you do if you were in this situation? You had a room full of people wanting to hear from you what God has to say. What would you say? Again, I think we get nervous in these types of situations. I have to share the gospel. How do I do that? If you've ever wondered, how do I share the gospel? Or if that sounds burdening, uh, threatening to you, uncomfortable, I think this passage can help. 
Very often I think we're uncomfortable sharing the gospel because we put too much weight on our own shoulders. We think it's our job to convert people. And that if we don't have the right arguments, we're going to like fail God. But it's not our job to convert people. That's the Lord's work. You don't have that power. No preacher is that good. Converting people is a matter of heart and mind change that only God can do. And I think sometimes we have to think we have to have all the apologetic answers. What if I can't answer a question they have? What if I don't know all I should know? What if I don't know everything about Scripture? I'll tell you, I bet Peter didn't know everything about Scripture. Not even Paul knew everything about Scripture. No man or woman does. So it's not your job to know everything about Scripture. Only God does. It's not your job to have all the apologetic answers. It's not your job to have the, the most wonderful testimony. I don't have a compelling story to say about my own life, about how God has changed it. And, and here's the good news. Actually, your testimony doesn't change people either. Your testimony is wonderful. It can be used to help. But your testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony is how the gospel changed you, but it's not the gospel itself. It's your story, which is great. But the gospel is about Jesus and what he did. And in order to share the gospel, which is all you're called to do ultimately, all you have to do is tell people about Jesus. And it's that simple. That's what Peter does. And any Christian can do what Peter does here. First, he gives a summary statement about the gospel. He says, as for the word that he sent to Israel... The word that God sent to Israel, God preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. So there's Peter's summary statement. Here's the summary statement about the gospel. It's good news of peace through Jesus Christ. I find that interesting. The core of the gospel is peace with God through Jesus Christ. That is the fundamental core. Why? Because that's our fundamental problem. At its core, this is the issue that everybody outside of God has. This is our fundamental issue. More than sin, more than judgment, our fundamental issue is peace with God. Sin and judgment are results of our lack of peace with God. But at the core, the core issue that solves all other issues is peace with God himself. We do not have peace with our Creator outside of Jesus Christ. And that is the core issue that everybody faces. You do not have peace with your creator. God has made you, but the relationship is broken and needs to be fixed and reconciled. It's a universal condition of all people outside of God. And the root issue is humans are not at peace with him. Once the relationship with God is restored, then all other problems of life, like sin and death, will eventually be fixed. But the core issue is peace with God. And because of that, Jesus is the only answer. Because he's the only one sent by God to reconcile the world to God. Jesus is the only one who can make peace with God for us. How has he done it? That's what Peter answers next. Here's the gospel summary. This is how Jesus has made peace for us with God. Peter says, First, that he was, appoint, he was anointed by God and indwelled with the Holy Spirit for ministry. So first thing Jesus did, first thing about Jesus, he's anointed by God, empowered for ministry. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So here's the first thing you need to know. Jesus is sent by God. 
Jesus anointed him, or God anointed Jesus through baptism and empowered him with the Holy Spirit, he is God's chosen means of saving people. First thing you need to know about Jesus, he's the one who God sent and appointed to save us. Second, second gospel truth, Jesus ministered and healed and delivered people, showing how God provides healing. Peter says, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Here's the second thing about Jesus. He healed and delivered people. He showed us what life in the kingdom will be like, where all will be healed and restored. Jesus did that in his life and ministry. Third, Jesus died for the sins of the world on a cross. Peter says, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Though Jesus was innocent, he was put to death, taking on our penalty, paying for the price we should have paid. He died on the cross. Fourth, Jesus didn't stay dead, but was raised from the dead. Peter says in verse 40, but God raised him on the third day. The grave could not hold him. Jesus defeated death, showing that we can have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Jesus has won victory over death. Fifth, Jesus appeared to many people and showed that his resurrection was bodily. He appeared to a bunch of people. So his resurrection from the dead is not just a spiritual thing, but it was a bodily thing. He ate and drank with people, and this is an observable fact of history. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It happened. A lot of people saw it. A lot of people met with, with Jesus. People who were alive at this time, Peter's saying oh, some of those people, they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. He appeared to many before his ascension. And then six, he's coming back to judge. Verse 42, and he commanded, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. God will one day send Jesus back to judge the earth. Are you concerned about the injustices of the world, the sin in the world, the brokenness of the world, and how it will be fixed? Here's how it will be fixed. One day, everything will be made right and will be judged, and there will be justice perfectly, and Jesus is the one appointed to bring it. How many of you want to tell the gospel like the apostles tell it? Like, you want to say the truth of the gospel, like the early apostles, like the early church, we want to have their gospel. All of you should raise your hand and say, yes, that's the gospel we want to be about, the apostolic gospel. Here's the thing, the apostolic gospel includes judgment. If we want to be faithful to scripture and the apostolic preaching of Jesus Christ, part of that story, the truth about Jesus, is he is our judge. And he is the one who will judge the world. This good news, this gospel, is only good, though, because we can be saved through it. How? Peter tells us. We can find salvation in the judge. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is how people are saved. Come to the judge, and you will be forgiven. You can imagine a courtroom where you stand on trial and the jury has convicted you. And they are right. You are guilty. And then you go to the judge for sentencing. And you plead before him and he gets off the bench, puts himself in handcuffs, and takes your sentence for you. 
This is the gospel. This is what has been done in Jesus Christ. All who come to the judge, knowing they're guilty, will find that the judge has taken their place and taken their penalty, and they can go free because of that. That's the gospel that Peter preaches. It's just saying this is what Jesus did and has done and who he is. Any of us can say this. Jesus was sent and anointed by God. He ministered and healed and delivered people. He was crucified in our place. He was raised from the dead. He appeared to many before ascending to heaven. He'll return to judge all the earth, and we can be spared from judgment if we believe in Jesus. Now all of you know how to share the gospel. And I believe this message is what saves people. This truth. And that's what happens here. They receive the messenger of God, they receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then third, Gentiles receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Verses 44 through 48. Gentiles receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, proving that they are truly God's people. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who had heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So this is what happens. While Peter is just speaking the plain gospel of Jesus Christ, this is who he is, this is what he's done, while that's happening, the Holy Spirit falls on all the Gentiles in the room. Which shows us a few things. One, you don't have to put a lot of pressure on people. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to be a flashy speaker. All you have to do is just report what Jesus did. That's, that's all that Peter's doing. There's no hard sales pitch here. There's, there's no elaborate PowerPoint presentation. He's just speaking the simple message of what Jesus Christ has done, and that is all it takes. The Holy Spirit responds that God sends, and people are saved in it. There's no secret power in sharing the gospel. It's simply, tell what Jesus did. Talk to people about Jesus. It's the most compelling thing you have to say. And it is the thing God uses to save people. And we see this by the way the Holy Spirit is sent. This is the message that God blesses. We see that in the way the Holy Spirit falls upon them. You don't have to be brilliant. Just tell people the gospel. Holy Spirit falls, and the Israelites and Peter are amazed. These Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit just like we did. I think they're referring to Pentecost. I think they're looking back at their Pentecost experience. Remember what happened at Pentecost in Acts 2? Peter preached the gospel. Holy Spirit fell. People were speaking in tongues and extolling God. Tongues being different languages, right? They didn't necessarily know how to speak before, but God, miraculously, supernaturally, has given them the ability to speak a bunch of different languages, and it is a sign that God has blessed them with the Holy Spirit, that they are part of the people of God. 
So this is another Pentecost experience, except it's not at the temple. It's not in Jerusalem. It's way over here on the coast with Gentiles. Pentecost 2 has happened here, the sequel. And they're amazed at that. How is this happening? Just like it happened to us, it's happening to them. Pentecost is repeated in the definite sign being that these people were speaking in tongues. Now, it brings up a question for us. Is this the sign for all of us? You know, how do we know people have become Christians? Should we anticipate that anybody who becomes a Christian should be able to speak in tongues? Our experience will immediately tell us no, because we'll say, I'm like me, I've never spoken in tongues. That means I'm not a Christian. I have to wrestle with this, right? What does scripture say? Well, Paul tells us not everybody will speak in tongues. Not all Christians have that gift. Says that in 1 Corinthians 12:30. He asks a series of questions about gifts in the church, and Paul asks rhetorically, "Are all apostles? Are all prophets?" And the implied answer is no to all these questions. Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the answer is no. And Paul is making the point that there are different gifts in the church, and we all have different gifts, and people use different things, and God blesses us in different ways. So we know from 1 Corinthians which we'll get to at some point, we know that not everybody who is a Christian has this gift of tongues. So we don't demand it as a definite sign that if you're a Christian, you'll have this, and that's how we know. But it's used here as a sign. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians wasn't written yet. Scripture wasn't written yet. The Old Testament was. Not the new. That was in process. This is a time where they didn't have the fullness of God's word written down for them to guide them. So God in his grace gave them a different sign so they could know. In this new age for God's people with unanswered questions about Jew and Gentile and how do they get along, they needed a sign from God to let them know that these Gentiles were part of the club. We don't need that sign of tongues. Why? Because we have Acts 9 through 11. We have Romans 9 through 11. We have the book of Galatians. We have Ephesians 2. We have Revelation 5, which shows us a multitude of people from every tribe and tongue, people and nation around the throne. We have God's word, which tells us how Jew and Gentile get along in Christ. They didn't have that yet, so they needed a sign from God. We don't need a supernatural sign to tell us Gentiles are included. We have a supernatural word written down for us, which teaches us and tells us. So we look to that. We look to this account, next 9 through 11, and see that even Gentiles are included, Gentiles like us and the people of God. Having been given this sign of tongues, Peter asks, is there anything to stop us from baptizing them with water. Uh, Russ did a wedding recently. Now I'll ask you, Russ, did you during the wedding do the old minister's thing of, is there anyone here who objects to this wedding? I hope not. Good. Yeah, that's the right answer. We don't do that anymore because somebody might respond. So <laughs> that guy, uh, when I do weddings, we don't ask that. But you may have heard or seen that question raised in the past. Is there anybody here who objects to this? Peter asked the same question. Anybody here have any objection to dunking these folks? Anybody here have any objection to baptizing them? It's like, no. 
Same thing that happened to us at Pentecost has happened to them. Clearly, they're part of us. They're God's people. So they're all baptized, which is the sign that you're part of God's people. They have been baptized with the Holy Spirit spiritually, and then they're baptized physically in response, showing they're part of the people of God. And there is much rejoicing. I'm assuming that was part of it. At the very least, they're amazed. These Israelites amazed at God's grace upon Gentiles. The other day on Twitter, I saw somebody making fun of dad jokes, which offended me. Um, but one of the dad jokes they made fun of was when you know, one dad will say to another, they meet each other at a restaurant, oh man, I guess they'll let anyone in here. You know, that cheesy joke, and I was offended because I've said that a bunch of times, mostly to people like you. Oh, they'll just let anybody in here, huh? That's what's going on in this passage. These Israelites are amazed. They'll let anybody in the church, won't they? God will let even them? And the answer is, yes. By grace, anybody can be part of the church. Even the people you least expect. And you have those people. They may be popping in your head right now. Those people in your life, those friends and family, think, I don't think they could ever be Christian. That is not Christian thinking. Christian thinking is anyone can be part of the people of God because everyone comes by grace. None of us deserving. All of us welcome in only by the grace of God, only through faith in Jesus Christ. If these Gentiles can be a part of it, anyone can be part of the people of God. James Boyce said, if God had showed favoritism, we would not have been saved. If God played favorites, you probably wouldn't have been one of them. But he doesn't. So anyone can be a Christian. All you have to do is believe the gospel of the apostles. So we asked in the beginning, how does God prove that all kinds of people can be his gospel people? How does God prove all kinds of people can be his gospel people? Here's our answer from this text. Gentiles, even Gentiles, receive the life-saving message of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God. All kinds of people will receive the gospel if we'll speak it. Would you pray with me? Our Father and God, this morning we praise you and thank you for the simplicity, the accessibility, um, the inclusivity, and I'd say even the, the, the specificity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a definite message about who Jesus is. It's accessible to all people. It's understandable. It's easy to speak. And empowered by your spirit, it has the power to change lives and it's changed us giving us peace with God. Pray, Lord, that we would be about this message, and that with this message we would know that all kinds of people can be a part of the church.
Lord, I pray that you would make us bold in speaking this message of grace in Jesus Christ and that there would be people who respond to it because it's good news and people need to hear it and it gives us peace with our creator. Bless us in this way, we pray, Lord. Amen.